I can't remember the last time there was so much attention paid to a plane landing at YVR, but that's what happened a couple of nights ago when news crews were on the ground trying to find the best spot to get a shot of the plane, to get a picture of that plane as it arrived. The passengers that had come from China weren't even getting off the plane and going into the terminal. There was no chance that anybody would be exposed to anybody who might have been exposed to the coronavirus, but it still became a huge story. In the coverage of this, the latest headlines, Hong Kong has quarantined 161 people who arrived from mainland China today as a new emergency measure to stop the spread of the virus. France is confirming five additional cases of coronavirus. And the embassy in Beijing says a 60-year-old American citizen diagnosed with coronavirus has now died in Wuhan, China. So what is the reaction like or what is the proper reaction when we see something like this unfolding? Let's bring in Dr. Stephen Taylor, professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. You're very welcome. Uh, how would you say we've done as far as or, or how would you sum up kind of the reaction and the continued reaction to this story? Um, the uh, You mean the... Um people being brought into quarantine? Oh, just how we're dealing with it in general, the people being in quarantine and how, how people are responding to what is what is a new virus? Um, well, there's an interesting Angus Reid poll that came out polling people's degrees of concern, and it's the same as it was in previous outbreaks. You know, roughly um, a third of people are appropriately concerned, roughly a third are uh, showing very little concern, and that, that's kind of troubling. Those people might not prepare themselves and then about a third of people are concerned and of those seven percent are highly concerned now that translates into 2.6 million canadians so here we are at the time the um, the survey was conducted there were four cases of the infection in canada four cases of infection yet 2.6 people were very concerned so that suggests that a significant segment of the population are excessively worried about becoming infected. And do you think that's that is the proper way to respond or because a lot of, of comparisons are being made as well with people saying, yes, it's a serious situation. It's a new virus and uh, we're seeing more cases and the death toll keeps rising. But it's still not it's not a virus that's killing as many people as the common flu or flu viruses that we've that we've had around for decades. Yeah, I agree that some degree of appropriate concern um, is helpful and expected. But uh, we need to be careful of the extremes, the extremes of people becoming highly anxious and the extremes of people just thinking it's overblown and not, not taking any precautions. And does it make people more concerned, do you think, or does it add another level of that when we see things like the quarantine, people coming back to Canada, being put in quarantine for 14 days? Uh, Yesterday, we saw a cruise ship company saying they would no longer take passengers with certain passports, no matter where they had traveled previously. But if they had those passports, they couldn't uh, come on a cruise. Yes, all of those things uh, serve as cues or triggers to heighten people's concerns. The understandable better safe than sorry approach quarantining people, the, the sight of so many people around wearing face masks, the, the announcements by the cruise ships, they heighten uh, community concern about the virus, it, well ahead of any actual cases of widespread infection.
And the message being given to people, too, when you mentioned face masks, and, and certainly it does seem like we're seeing more of those, but the message being that if you, if you want to have a line of defense, a better line of defense is washing your hands, not touching your face, and doing things that we would do for any type of virus rather than throwing on a face mask and thinking that that's going to save you. Exactly. These face masks are what we psychologists call safety signals. They're things that the person, uh, almost like a good luck charm. I'm going to carry, wear this face mask and it'll keep, keep me safe. It's a, uh, something that's visible, it's demonstrable. It's not like washing your hands where it's something you don't know you've actually done it. Has this person washed their hands? So you, you can wear this uh, as a way of keeping safe, even though face masks are not effective in protecting yourself from the virus. And as you say, uh, the best defense is to... Uh, practice good hand hygiene, keep your hands away from your face and cough into your elbow. Are the masks then also, I think I had read or heard that while they're not a great measure, like you just said, for for keeping yourself protected, if you have a virus or a cold or the flu or something, they are a good measure or they are at least something that stops you from spreading it. Exactly. That's where the masks are most important. However, that said, if you're infectious, then you should stay home rather than going out infecting other people. Because it's well known that most people in the community don't know how to properly use these masks. Uh, and, and so you know, people wearing the masks, rubbing their eyes um, and so forth. And that's a way, even though you're wearing a mask, you can spread infection. And is there concern then that as people realize this, that it's not, people aren't wearing them or, or perhaps aren't wearing them to protect themselves, they're wearing them to, to save others, uh, then people start being wary of people wearing masks and assuming that they do have some kind of infection? Yeah, exactly. You're right. It, it heightens the perception of danger. If everyone around me is wearing a mask, then I'm going to conclude, wow, maybe some of these people are infected. And that's going to um, uh, inflate, it will create a false sense of threat. And what about the, the, the issue of, of the people who have died and the death toll? And I think as of this morning, it's, it's gone past 700. But what about the, we, we throw those numbers around and we have these updates without really looking at whether or not the people infected. And obviously it's, it's a bad thing that 700 people have died of this virus. But do we, not, do we look enough at underlying factors and the fact that people may have had compromised immune systems to begin with and, or, or may have had issues or were of a certain age? It's not as though somebody who was perfectly healthy one day was, was dead of this virus the next. Exactly. I think it's important to keep these numbers in perspective. As far as I can tell, the death rate is still around 2%. And it's still objectively more dangerous for Canadians to be smoking or crossing the street. Uh, so, yeah, you need to put those sorts of threats into perspective. And we need more data on who are the, uh, the people uh, who succumbed. As you say, they're most likely people who are medically frail with weakened immune systems and so forth. And that's important to know because that's very different from some previous pandemic. If we think about the Spanish flu, um, the people who succumbed were most often healthy, uh, young adults. Right. Which, yeah, very, very different. People have been making the comparison as well of the Spanish flu, but looking at the the death rate percentage uh, and also raising the issue saying, but, but that was much, a much different time in that the treatment is much different now, or you would think that we would have uh, things to try and treat the virus or, or keep people from dying now compared to when the times of the Spanish flu. Exactly. Things are very different now. Back then, during the Spanish flu, um, many people died not because of the viral infection, but because of secondary bacterial pneumonia. 
And so that's something that we can, we can treat. We can prevent that from happening today. What about the uh, rather the number of conspiracy theories or people that simply don't believe China has been honest and uh, think it, are thinking that this is actually much worse than it is? There will always be conspiracy theorists out there, and, and people hold on to these theories for all kinds of reasons. And it's interesting, the people who believe that um, there's a conspiracy around this coronavirus also tend to be the people who believe that NASA faked the moon landing, that 9-11 was an inside job, uh, and so forth. So if you believe one conspiracy theory, you're going to buy into others. Um, and usually these conspiracy theorists live in their own little information silos. So that conspiracies typically aren't widespread. Um, but we are seeing a little bit of that, that with the coronavirus conspiracies. But I think many people will just take these as a grain of salt. Uh, and so finally, so what advice would you give? Because I'm also seeing from people, uh, parents saying their kids are afraid to go to school. And like you said, you can go, uh, the conspiracy theories are everywhere. You can go online and, and read some pretty crazy stuff. What advice yeah. do you have for people who are concerned about this? Um, if you've got an appropriate level of concern, if, you're, if uh, it's not keeping you awake at night, then that's fine. Carry on as usual. I think we should Pay attention to what health authorities like the WHO are recommending. And they're recommending for places like Canada, go about your daily business. Don't cancel things. Um, but practice good hand hygiene. Um, and if you are finding yourself becoming excessively anxious, then perhaps it's time to, to, to stop following these stories, particularly the more dramatic stories. Um, and, of course, the interesting thing is, although we don't have a vaccine for this coronavirus, we have a treatment for anxiety about the coronavirus, and that's cognitive behaviour therapy. So if someone is getting extremely anxious about this, then I would recommend that they seek out help from a mental health practitioner such as a psychologist. All right, very good advice. Uh, Dr. Stephen Taylor, we will leave it there. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks very much. Well, maybe if you went out last night, you got home using a ride share because you can do that in certain areas now. A couple of weeks in, there have certainly been some bumps in the road. Two court cases dealt with this past week as well. Let's bring in Ian Tostenson, the president and CEO of Ride Sharing Now for BC. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about yourself? Well, I'm just amazed. I don't even know how to put this in perspective. I mean, you running to the courtroom and every day, it's like an O.J. Simpson trial going on here. Every day there's something that's breaking or news. Or it's just, and you know, I was thinking, I don't think there's ever been an issue like this in the news that's, that has such continuous, it's so continuous, that has such consumer interest and, and impact, Right. It just, it just goes on and on. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, there's so many different uh, different pieces to this, the cost of yeah. these court cases. Uh, I was in the courtroom. So on Thursday, and it was the same judge, uh, Madam Justice Veronica Jackson, Thursday's ruling against the Vancouver Taxi Association, it took her about an hour to read out her ruling. Uh, it was pretty scathing, I found. She did not take in one shred of evidence from the Taxi Association. She gave it no merit. She called it anecdotal scant, basically said they didn't have a case before ruling in favor of rideshare. And then again yesterday, not as scathing, but certainly ruling in favor of Uber, saying uh, Uber absolutely deserved to get that injunction uh, because they would suffer financial harm, harm to their reputation. And what I thought was was quite interesting and something I think you've been arguing is she ruled it absolutely is in the public interest to have rideshare in Metro Vancouver. 
Yeah, I thought your description of the SmackDown on Thursday was awesome. And um, I find it really interesting. Like, you know, uh, we always say this, the taxis deserve to, to have a good life and to get on with it. But they they argue on one hand, they throw out numbers that their business is down 30 or 40%. Their costs are, you know, so high. It, well, what is it? Is it a cost issue? That's a different issue than it is a revenue issue. So, and I, I think that they just seem to throw out uh, such emotional stuff to not do themselves any favor. When I look at Friday, I thought, I thought Friday was kind of interesting because, you know, someone just said to me this morning, the two horse mare fell off his horse. I mean, and, and then he just decides to move on. We go, and so, but I think it was a brilliant strategy because he can look the tax industry in the eye and say, you know what, I went to the wall for you and there's nothing more I can do. And on the other hand, if Uber ever wanted the best campaign to advertise their brand was the mayor of Surrey because Uber just has been an appearing, you know, in top of the news uh, every single day. So uh, it, that was fascinating as well, too. But I'm not surprised. This, the, the judge, I think, is the most common sense judge I've seen. She's right. She's clear. She gets a public interest. Let's move on. Um, and, and I think the tax industry needs to tell the public that, you know, that the government provincial government has has come to the taxi industry said look we're going to give you the same insurance product that the rideshare uh, companies have which is based on per kilometer and and i think they should be a little bit sort of grateful to that because it was uber and lyft that pushed that and presumably if you're you know maybe more of a part-time taxi you're gonna be paying less insurance to have your car on the road than you are today so they are getting some some you know some some benefits that um they're not obviously willing to admit too easily to. Uh, yeah, and I think that's that's what people would would agree to as well is that nobody wants the, the hardship to be felt by any particular group. But and even taxi drivers I talked to yesterday said we know Uber's here. We we get it. We understand that we all need to work together. We just want the government to look at the insurance issue, to look at the boundaries issue, and to make it just a bit more fair. I think the public is is totally behind that, and I think. You know, I think the Vancouver Taxi Association in particular should just tone it down a little differently, um, you know, because really um, they've, they've got their insurance that they'll solve that. They've got they're going to get some more money with uh, for accessible cabs, which is great for the public. And this whole issue and this doesn't come out very clear, but the whole issue on boundaries when they say, you know, we can't operate and we have these boundaries. Well, that's, that's their own internal dispute between Vancouver and British Columbia Taxi Association. So they had to solve that one because the government can't step in and solve that because if they do, they're going to make Vancouver matter vice versa. So um, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for the tax industry to take what's available right now and, and to have, you know, to, to improve their services and um, and exist, coexist with, with rideshare. I find that talking to taxi drivers, obviously you do too, um, they've been sort of given a little bit of mis- – we took a taxi to the airport today and and uh, it was North Shore cabs, and the guy goes, yeah, business is off about 40%. And I said, really? He goes, well, that's what they're telling us. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, careful, you know, with all this sort of misinformation. I don't think it's that bad. I think it has had an impact. I think that um, people that are driving for Uber and Lyft are making some good money, and I think it's a lot better, more positive, this whole thing, than than what we're sort of hearing at top of the news sometimes. Uh, what's your reaction yesterday? We heard from the Passenger Transportation Board, uh, two more companies. Uh, people yeah. were surprised that Cabu got the green light because they've been operating illegally for so long. And then another one, Tapcard, didn't. Uh, what's your reaction with a couple more companies coming online? Yeah, I was reading that. Uh, so Go Cabu was operating in Richmond, and you sort of had to have the inner code to uh, access them because it was the gray market. And they argued that... It, um, 
their argument was they were just providing the technology, not the drivers. And so I guess the passenger transportation board sort of saw beyond that because they stopped, they, they ceased their operations in Richmond uh, and said, we want to come back legitimately. So when I read through the application, they sound like their, their angle is really interesting. They're going to target international students, tourists, um, and markets where perhaps a customer English is a second language as well as the general public. And I think the Passenger Transportation Board probably saw that as, uh, you know, in British Columbia as a much-needed service because I don't think you're going to get that kind of nuance uh, with Lyft and Uber. And so I think that that's kind of good. I mean, the black the background was a bit odd, but I think they're going to be a good company. I think they're really solid in their experience. The other company, um, I think it's going to be operating sort of – no, the other one I haven't read yet. But um, Kaboo is going to be throughout British Columbia. So what I'm happy about is they're going to pave the way to create awareness for ride sharing in places like Kamloops, the Okanagan, and Victoria, because I've just been feeling kind of bad. We left out the rest of BC. So they are presumably going to be up and running, and I guess sometime late spring, which is great. And they claim they can have, uh, you know, the the um, they have enough drivers to pull this off. I still, the one thing I am suspect about everything is this whole class four thing. I mean, if we could change that slightly to populate more drivers, uh, it would be more, it would be ideal in terms of the rollout of the brands, but it is what it is right now. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Ian, thank you so much. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. We see what happens next week, right? <laughs> you never, ever know. Very true. Yeah, thanks, Jill. <laughs> well, the BC Law Society has made a change, and the change has to do with asking people, asking students and uh, would-be lawyers, medical fitness questions or questions about mental health. And while some are applauding the change, others are asking perhaps why it took so long and why it maybe took a BC Human Rights Tribunal case to get this conversation started. Well, let's bring in Kyla Lee, a lawyer at Acumen Law, to talk a little bit more about this. Kyla, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What does this actually mean as far as the Law Society no longer asking questions about medical fitness? This essentially means that people who would previously have had to either jump through additional hoops or even been prevented from becoming members of the profession will no longer be stigmatized and no longer be put through those hurdles simply as a result of having a mental illness or a medical condition that they obviously didn't choose to have. So in the case itself, in the in the BC Human Rights Tribunal case that's cited in this story, it's a, a, an articling student or a, a student who says that his career was put put back a few years because it, it became public knowledge or he had to answer questions about addiction and time that he had spent in rehab. Is, is that correct? It is correct. And it's an unfortunate thing, but for a very long time, the Law Society was asking people about whether they had any mental illness at all. Um, that was amended slightly to, to an, a question about whether you've ever been in rehab or, or had treatment for an addiction to try and specifically identify certain problems that are, are common among the profession. Um, and then now it's finally being re- removed in part as a result of this. And so is the argument then being made that because the student or if any student, I guess, admitted, said, yes, I've dealt with addiction, I'll use that example, I've dealt with addiction or I've been in rehab, uh, then you wouldn't be able, it would be more difficult to get an articling position? 
it's not necessarily more difficult to get an articling position, but it's something that you do have to disclose to your principal, the person you're going to be doing your articles with, because you have to answer those questions and your principal has to review the form. Um, and so it can make somebody, you know, instantly nervous about hiring you. You know, here's somebody who's struggled with addiction. Addiction can cause all sorts of problems when people are actively in addiction. Um, and, you know, do you want to take on that burden as somebody who's going to be having to mentor and educate the student? and be committed to them. And I would imagine, too, were, were students or were you compelled, obviously, to disclose everything? Or was there some, I, I would think there would be some, uh, you, you would want to maybe uh, minimize it as much as you could. Yes, there was. Uh, I mean, initially, students were compelled to disclose everything. Around the time I applied for articles, uh, the question was limited somewhat um, to things that could currently impact you um, in your ability to practice law. Um, and then the question was uh, reformulated yet again after I got called to the bar to, you know, to very specific uh, questioning about certain uh, issues. And now it's being removed entirely. Do you think, so was the reason being though, if you're a lawyer, if you're in this position, you do need to, to, to be in a position where you can make these decisions and understand what's happening. And I mean, you do play an important role as you're standing up for somebody or you're fighting for somebody in, in, as, as their lawyer. Uh, do you think there was any merit to having some of the questions or, or to, to have this in there at all? No, I don't think so. And and there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the articling process is designed to weed out those people who aren't capable of, you know, representing their clients adequately, who don't behave in an ethical manner, who who pose a risk to the public if they were to be admitted into the profession. So a principal could easily identify whether a person has mental health issues that are going to impact um, their ability to practice law and their ability to adequately represent clients without putting them at risk. So you don't need the question um, in order to prevent somebody from starting articling. That's the whole purpose of the articling program is to look for those things among any other possible concerns with somebody's fitness to practice. Um, and it was also incredibly stigmatizing because lots of people had mental health issues that probably wouldn't have impacted their ability to practice, but because they were um, being asked the question, they felt that they had to disclose it, which then, you know, in instances like this, prevented people entirely from becoming lawyers or significantly delayed their ability to become lawyers. Right. And that makes that makes total sense, because uh, to the, to otherwise it, it would suggest that anybody that's ever had any issue with mental health or issue that they've worked through couldn't become a lawyer, which sounds ridiculous. Well, absolutely. And you need people who've had those experiences to be among the profession because you get a certain amount of perspective after struggling with a mental health issue. You can understand where your clients are coming from. And for lawyers, a lot of us, our job is dealing with people who are who are struggling with mental health and dealing with people who have these issues and trying to help them and trying to figure out a solution to their problems. And if you have no idea where they're coming from, it's a lot more difficult than if you actually have some common ground with your client and you can go, look, this is what worked for me. You know, why don't you try this and see if this works for you? Do you think they need to go further or have they gone far enough with changing and, and removing the question? I think changing and removing the question as far as the articling process um, is is probably far enough, but I think the law society needs to be doing a lot more on the whole to deal with issues of mental health and and lawyers because right now there's very limited resources that they do offer and they're offered free of charge. Um, but it's it's not something that we have as a conversation 
as lawyers. You know, we even saw late last year, um, or I guess mid last year, the one of the justices at the Supreme Court of Canada um, quitting his job because of mental health issues that had plagued him his entire career. And yet he didn't have any way of dealing with them because we're not equipped as lawyers to address these issues for ourselves. And I think the law society needs to step up and say, we know this impacts our, our, our people and we need to do more to constantly be helping people with their mental health. All right. Well, that makes uh, total sense. Uh, absolutely. We will leave it there. We are out of time. But uh, Kyla, always good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I think we can all agree the BC coast is a pretty beautiful one. There's a reason why people are drawn to it. It's rugged on a beautiful sunny day. It can be breathtaking. But you might be surprised at how many derelict boats are in the waters under the surface and how much garbage and debris actually needs to be cleaned up. That is the focus of a report. It was just released a couple of days ago by Sheila Malcolmson, a parliamentary secretary for the environment and Sheila Malcolmson joins me on the line now to talk a little bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Morning Jill. Uh, What exactly was the the report looking at as far as uh, debris or things uh, that need to be cleaned up on the coast? You know every time we talk to as a government to members of the public about environmental issues climate change, anything. We kept hearing marine plastics, plastic pollution, and how concerned everybody is. The images are tragic, you know, entangled whales, and it's really grabbed public's attention. So we wanted to dive in and recognizing this is mostly in the federal government's hands to fix the problems. You know, it may be that we can use our recycling tools as a provincial government to both prevent the pollution in the first place and then also help with recycling the materials that are collected after the fact. And are we talking specifically on BC's coast or coasts and oceans in general? We are talking BC's coast. Once the pollution hits the shoreline, it's a, um, it, it falls into what the provinces is um, has got a lot of responsibility for. And, and so, yeah, we... And in fact, my study was more narrow. I really was asked by the Premier to look at pollution that comes from the marine environment. So fiberglass pollution and little oil spills from abandoned vessels, uh, styrofoam falling apart from docks and and pollution from uh, fishing gear. So all things that have a marine connection um, and what tools we've got as a province to prevent the pollution and deal with it after the fact. And what did you? What do you suggest, or what does the report suggest we could do immediately, or would be a short-term goal to try and clean this up or stop future pollution? The report we released this week is our reflection of what we heard from all the amazing people around BC that gave us advice over the last six or eight months. Uh, so it's a it's called a what we heard report. It says these are this is the the shopping list of all the ideas that came out. Now, what we're doing internally now is figuring out which of them, you know, what's the low-hanging fruit, which of them really are federal, which are the ones that are totally provincial. So I haven't yet developed my recommendations to the environment minister, but some highlights we got from the public are things like uh, fix the vessel registration system so that when the police are out on the water, they can actually look up in real time. Is that a stolen boat? Is that an abandoned boat? You can't look 
using the vessel number the way that you can with a car license plate. Like that just sent a fax to somewhere else in the country and they wait a few days. I mean, it's just a, that's a broken system. Uh, we also heard some really good ideas about things we can use ground up fiberglass for. Like there's amazing groups like the Dead Boat Society that have been doing dozens of abandoned vessel removals, but sometimes those boats just end up in landfill. And local governments are saying, we did not budget for this. We don't want to fill up our landfill with these old wrecked boats. So people suggested maybe we can copy what other jurisdictions have done, shred fiberglass up and add it to strengthen concrete or use it to extend uh, asphalt for road paving. There may be some ways we can you know, stretch our other natural resources further by, by incorporating some uh, pollution. Uh, because I, I know in Vancouver, I'm guessing uh, on Vancouver Island as well in some areas, uh, whenever there's a huge windstorm, uh, we often see the sailboats that are moored off just off the Vancouver coast. Uh, they get broken up and they come to shore. And that, that's been brought up before as an issue because it, a lot of times the owners of those boats, they're not on them, they're, they're not even in Vancouver, and just leave them because they're battered to bits, but they leave them. And then it becomes the responsibility of either Vancouver or Port Moody or wherever the boat has washed up. Is that something the report looked at? It sure did. And it's something I've been working on for about 12 years, along with other local governments. And then I tried to nail this problem when I was a federal member of parliament. Uh, so it's a, it is a huge problem. And a lot of it is about accountability. You know, so we were, we would hear from some of the uh, frontline groups that are acting on, on a, what they think might be an abandoned vessel They'll uh, look up the owner of record. It turns out to be some guy in um, Arizona who sold the boat 14 years ago. And he says, why are you calling me? So it's not, we don't have the same system like we do with cars. If you, if you leave your car at the side of the road, it's going to catch up with you. You're going to get a bill uh, for the removal. And we just don't have those accountability mechanisms for, for boats. But you're right, big storms, and we're getting more of them because of climate change. They sometimes mark a turning point for a, a vessel owner that if they can, you know, we don't want this, but sometimes they do uh, turn their backs and walk away from their responsibilities. But, you know, we've had some real success. Boating BC um, got some funding to put together a website where responsible owners that want to do the right thing and, and, and treat their boat, you know, at the end of its life in a good way, uh, there are now some resources that help people navigate that system of maybe they can donate their boat or else they can get it to a recycling facility before it sinks and causes a pollution problem and is more expensive to deal with after the fact. So we're chipping away at it. It's going to take a lot of cooperation between the federal and provincial government on that one. Uh, you mentioned styrofoam as well, and that's certainly been in the news a lot as municipalities, uh, Vancouver being one, are, are working to ban styrofoam packaging. Uh, but styrofoam is used in docks, and it's used a lot in the marine environment. Uh, do you think a ban on, on material like that would work or you would get compliance when it is used so much? Styrofoam pollution is the biggest thing we heard about from the public. In, it came up in every conversation. And after big storms like we've had this winter, it just shows up even more on beaches. And if it doesn't get picked up when it's in a great big chunk, you know, by year two, it's in tiny little pieces. I don't know if you saw the story in the sun yesterday, we had people from Mosquito Island share photographs with us of their kids shoveling 
chunks of and little tiny pieces of styrofoam. It looked like they were standing in a snowdrift. I mean, it, it's horrible, especially particular exposures of particular beaches. They're just getting hammered with us. So people did in the tour I did last summer suggest a ban on styrofoam in the marine environment. There are a lot of places, and we are now, as a provincial government, uh, asking shellfish operators to have a plastics management plan when we reissue tenure, but that's, again, mostly federal responsibility, so we're going to be working with our counterparts on that. We also heard from a lot of shellfish growers that they are already themselves taking styrofoam out of their operations and they're really innovating on on designing some new systems that are totally styrofoam free but still give the flotation to their um, oyster growing operations that they need and they're even using recycled plastic in the from their old uh, oyster trays which are another pollution problem you know so there is some good experimentation happening out there uh, but it's still emerging technology um, but you know marinas we heard about um, Burrard marina in Vancouver people very upset that something publicly owned is um is shedding styrofoam into the into the environment then and then maybe a nice contrast I visited with um Oak Bay marine in uh, Sydney, and they have um, in, they've got a, a sort of a sea. It's called a sea bin. It is constantly working, kind of like those little automated vacuums in your house, pulling out little bits of styrofoam and oil. And so they're, you know, it's quite expensive, but they are constantly improving the waters right exactly around the marina and dealing with the the pollution that's coming from it. So we've got some good models out there, and now it's up to us to. Uh, to find out how we can support those uh, business and amazing environmental group efforts that have been really carrying the load on looking after the pollution from the coast. And so what does happen next? Again, the report, what we heard on marine debris in BC, what's the next step? So we're doing the work now for me to solidify recommendations that I'll table with the environment minister. That's what the premier asked me to do. At the same time, the Environment Minister is finishing his work on land-based plastics. There's a huge consultation, got tons of public input on changing deposit legislation, on including more things in the blue box, uh, more tools that we can use to have more manufacturer responsibility for um, for single-use plastics. Uh, we're taking people's advice on whether there should be bans on plastic bags. So that work, his work and mine, are, are both going to be coming out. You know, In the pretty near term, we're really eager to, to start to incorporate all the advice we've had from British Columbians and get some results that will make some real change. All right. So, well, definitely we will be uh, keeping in touch and seeing what happens with that. Sheila Malcolmson, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation, Jill. Beautiful looking day out there. Nice break from the rain this weekend. It is also Variety Weekend. You've likely heard about this. We've been talking about it here on CKNW as well as on Global News. And joining me now to talk a bit more about her personal connection with the weekend is Michelle Stowell, uh, the mother of Cadence, who is a boy from Port Moody. And Michelle, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us this morning. Oh, thank you. Uh, I know Cadence has been on Global News and a lot of viewers uh, likely already know him or know of him. But for people that don't know Cadence's story, maybe uh, give us a a bit or if you can tell us a bit about how you first got involved uh, with Variety. Um, So 
Cadence uh, was diagnosed when he was five and went to public school for three years, which was horrendous. I picked him up every day. He was crying, withdrawn, sitting in the corner. Um, and then I had heard about uh, Greater Heights Learning Academy, and I had t- uh, taken him there. And um, it is a, a private school that specializes for children with special needs. Um, and uh, there was just no way I was going to be able to afford the school, and they had told me about Variety. And Variety has now helped me uh, for the last uh, four years he's been going there, continue paying for his education, and it has been a life changer for him. And and so you wouldn't have had that opportunity, or like you said, it would have been, I would imagine, extremely difficult to, to do this without that help. I wouldn't have been able to do it without this help. And, I mean, when I, Cadence entered that school, I, I wasn't even sure if he, he wasn't reading, writing. And uh, four years later, he, he has friends, he's social, um, he's reading, he's writing, he's doing math. I mean, he has just excelled in every way. And uh, absolutely, this opportunity has only been made possible because of variety. That's amazing. What, what's the difference, do you think, between the public school and uh, this program? Um, the public schools aren't equipped to deal with children with special needs. They, they don't have the staffing. Uh, you hear about it all the time in the news. And they, they don't know how to deal with our children. They're just they're just not equipped. And this specialized school has the staffing that is equipped. They have occupational therapists and speech ther- speech therapists. They have physiotherapists. They have vision resource. They have counselors. And it's all there. And it's such a support team at the school. It's amazing. Yeah, it, it sounds it sounds amazing. Now, did Cadence get a diagnosis? As far as do you know, what causes him to to have a bit of a, to be challenged when it comes to to in, in, uh, learning and and that kind of thing? Uh, yes, yeah, so he has a missing gene, so it's it's a, a genetic disorder. Um, he has speech and language disorder. There's a, a lot of things that fall fall underneath that actually missing gene that he has. So he's been very, very fortunate um, to be able to go to this school. Mm-hmm. It, it, like I said, it's changed his life. <laughs> and and what about the future of, of this then? Do you have um, the, the, the continued support of Variety, or what? What do you? How do you? How does the future look at this point? Well, Variety has helped us um, for the last four years, so it's due to Variety's continued support that he's able to stay in the school. This school is a K-12, and he's in grade 7. He's very excited about going into high school. So without Variety's future support, we won't be able to continue. And um, I I just don't think people know there's so many programs out there with Variety that Cadence has been able to participate in that he's actually grown friendships because families are coming out to all these different events. It's, It's been truly amazing. It sounds like it, and it sounds like absolutely without this opportunity, uh, who knows where he would be or how much more he would be struggling. You know, I can tell you right now, if he hadn't have gone to this school, if I hadn't have had the support from Variety, um, I think he he has so much confidence now. He loves this school. He goes there and he has a sense of belonging and a sense of self-worth. He knows that he's different. And that's fine because he knows everyone at that school is working to help him so that he can so that he can get better, that he can learn. They know that. That's uh, amazing. Now, are you or Cadence, are you doing anything or participating in Variety this weekend? We will be there tomorrow. 
We will be there tomorrow morning, bright and early. Um, we're very excited, very, very excited to be there. All right. Well, I know it's going to be a very, very exciting and a very fun-filled and packed day. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Again, I know people have seen Cadence on the news and on Global, but always good to get an update and a reminder of just how important the program is and how it helps people, uh, how all of the money raised helps people. So thank you so much. And both of you have a great day tomorrow. Um, Thank you. Can I just say one thing? To anybody that's listening, please, please, please think of these children. They really need your support. And, you know, I know there's lots of places you can donate in the world, but I recommend please donate to Variety because they are making differences in each and every one of these children, not just mine. All right. A great message. Very important one for sure. Michelle, thank you again so much. You're welcome. Have a great day. Thank you.